Good morning. All right, so hopefully you guys are as excited to be in a new series as I am. And um, the book of the Psalms has been such a great encouragement to me, such a great teaching tool. And if you haven't been here for a while, you haven't been uh, through our last series in the Psalms where we spent some time in the Psalms of the Christian life. But so often uh, we use the Psalms to encourage us, to challenge us. We use the Psalms to sing them to music. We use them as corporate prayer. We use them for encouragement. And connections have been made between the five uh, books that come first in our Bible. They call them the Pentateuch or the five scrolls and the five books that are within the Psalms. And so uh, one commentator calls them the Pentateuch of praise. I think that's a great way to understand the book of the Psalms because the Psalms has been ministering to the people of God for 3,000 years. And throughout the Psalms, you get every range of human emotion. You get the highs and the lows and everything we experience, every situation we could possibly go through, the psalmists commentate on. But the amazing thing is that no matter how high they get or how low they get, it always results in praise of our God. And so this Pentateuch of praise is a great example to us because especially when we're dealing in book two. So book two, if you don't know, the Psalms are divided into five books. Book two begins at chapter 42 and ends at chapter 72. And in book two, we see mostly uh, persecution and strife and affliction and a lot of deep pain. There's a lot of attacks from enemies. There's a lot of persecution. There's a lot of challenge against the people of God and God. This more than any book in the Psalms, you have broken hearts of God's people crying out to him. And he is their rock. He is their refuge. He is their redeemer. He is their salvation. That's why the focus of the next 10 weeks is going to be God, our help. Because the psalmist teaches us that, that in every season of life, especially in the darkest and most discouraging ones, our God is our help. And these psalms in particular speak to us because each one of us at some point, no matter how strong we are in our faith, we know what it's like to be downcast. We know what it's like for our souls to be broken. For some of us, it happens very often. And so the question this morning and for the next several weeks, especially for the next two weeks, is what do we do when our heart is downcast? What do we do when we're discouraged? What, we, what do we do when we're depressed? And I would challenge you, if you don't cry out to God, you don't understand your own weakness. And if you don't cry out to God, you don't understand his strength. And we can learn this from the psalmist, that it is not our strength that we take comfort in. It is his strength. And in his strength, then, we can glory in him in our weakness. But I would say, sadly, today in our culture, Christians do not have a healthy doctrine of suffering. With all the prosperity gospels out there and with all the, the uh, health and wealth Christian bumper stickers, we assume everything's going to go well. But we know that's not this life in this fallen world. And the scriptures have a lot to say about suffering, but sadly the church doesn't. And so I want us to have a healthy view of suffering because when you face suffering, we shouldn't be without answers because Scripture gives us plenty of answers. Because affliction is inevitable. But how do we deal with affliction biblically? You know, a, a lot of times we are naive when we become Christians and, and we just assume that, okay, I'm going to pray a prayer and everything's good. But we find something very different in the Scriptures, especially in the New Testament. We spent the last year and a half in John. Jesus himself promises it. John 16, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus promises it. You will have tribulation. Paul prepares us for it. If you look at Romans chapter 5, I love that Paul makes this connection. Chapters 1 through 4, he talks about the gospel, our, our sin and the wrath of God. In chapter 4, he explains justification. He begins chapter 5 reminding them of justification, but goes right into suffering. Romans 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Oh, wait a second. I'm with the whole peace thing. 
And with the whole faith thing and, and grace thing, that's all good. I understand that. But rejoicing and suffering, that's when you get really Christian and that's when you get really crazy. But this is a natural outflowing for Paul. If you understand peace, if you understand your faith in God, if you understand your justification in Christ and his grace, then you can rejoice in your suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you understand the gospel, you can have a healthy doctrine of suffering. Jesus promises it. Paul predicts it. Peter also predicts it. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The number one lie of the devil is you're the only one who struggles with this. You're the only one who suffers. You're the only one who's afflicted this way, so you should keep it inside because everyone else is going to laugh at you. The same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And in your suffering, we think that that's the end of the story. In our struggles, we think that's it, and we don't keep reading. You must keep reading. And after you, after you have suffered a little while, a little while, it always seems like a long time in the moment, but suffering is truly a little while. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. As Christians, we can trust that our God can save us from our sins and restore us from our broken humanity that was cursed at the fall. But we don't trust that he can restore our broken circumstances, that we can't go to him in our suffering and he will strengthen us. It's amazing we can trust him for eternity, but can we trust him today? So we're going to look at some of those things in our passage. The Bible has a lot to say about suffering. But so do our predecessors. Charles Spurgeon is called the Prince of Preachers. He is the standard for what powerful expository preaching should look like. And he struggled with depression his entire adult life. It started when he was 24. He was preaching to thousands of people, which is customary for him. Someone trying to pull a prank on him yells fire in a crowded building. There's chaos. And there's a stampede going out the door. Seven people die. Twenty-eight are severely harmed. And from that moment on, he struggled with depression. He could not shake the rest of his life. And he, he was always plagued by his own inabilities and his own inadequacies, even though he was a powerful man when he stood in the pulpit. He once said this, I could say with Job, my soul to this strangling rather than life. Look it up. Job 7.15. I could readily enough have laid violent hands upon myself to escape from my misery of spirit. Spurgeon struggled with suicidal thoughts. He also said this in, in one of his sermons. My spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child. And yet I knew not what I wept for. However, he trusted in God's sovereignty in his suffering. And he knew that his depression brought some of the most fruitful times in his prayer life, in his personal life, and in his ministry. And so he leaned into it. He actually used it as a teaching tool. He taught on depression very often. He used himself as an example. And he reminded people that when you are suffering, Christ suffered for you. When you feel like no one cares about what's going on, Christ is our high priest who is sympathetic toward our sins. And he also said this. The sympathy of Jesus is next most precious thing to his sacrifice. Yes, we have a Savior who sacrificed for our sins, but we also have a Savior who is sympathetic toward our sins. This is what Hebrews 4 tells us. This great passage. Hebrews 4, uh, starting in verse 15. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. 
If we faced all of our difficulties by first reminding ourselves of who Christ is, our high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Our high priest is sympathetic and knows what it means to be tempted, knows what it means to be in the weakness of the flesh. So what do we do with that? Verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For those who are downcast, for those who deal with suffering and depression, we remind ourselves of who Christ is. The gospel is our remedy. Our high priest has gone before us to intercede for us. And because he can sympathize with our weakness, we can approach the throne of grace boldly in every need. So that's where we find ourselves now in Psalm 42. So we're going to spend two weeks in Psalm 42 and 43. Uh, There's a lot of argument about whether these are two separate psalms or whether these go together. It's not really for us to decide this morning. But they, they do certainly belong together. And there's a clear pattern within them. So we will teach them together. And so Psalm 42 flow very much like the Christian life. Up and down. Discouragement. And when you get discouraged, you you interrogate yourself. You ask yourself questions. Why do I feel like this? Why is this going on? God, why would you do this to me? And you look to the Lord and you remember your salvation and you praise him. And then you repeat again and again. These are the Psalms of the Christian life. And we're going to see this rhythm over the next two weeks. And this is our biblical answer to depression. Depression is defined as a prolonged state of emotional dejection and withdrawal. Depression defined as a prolonged state of emotional rejection and withdrawal. And we will also see this morning that our depression is attached to our view of God. So let's read our text this morning. I'm going to read through all of 42 and 43, but we're going to focus on verses 1 through 5 this morning, and we'll finish them next week. And I want, as we read this, not just to read this as words on a page, But read this as written by a person who is feeling what they are writing, who is honest with themselves and honest with us. And we should be honest with ourselves as well as we read this. Psalm 42, verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and of Hermon and of Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By the day or by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against the ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar. And to God, my my exceeding joy, I will praise you with the lyre. Oh God, my God. Why are you downcast, my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Lord, what powerful words that point us to you. That we, not would become, that we would not become immune to our own failings, 
to our own soul's desire for you. That in our suffering and in our discouragement that we would cry out to our God. Knowing that you are our Savior. You are our God. You are our hope. Lord, I pray that your spirit would minister to your people. That as your helper, he would remind us of the truth. He would remind us of who Christ is and what he has done for us. To be an encouragement for the body. And teach us to run to you. Teach us to trust in you. Teach us to hope in you. And teach us to be people who does not have a shallow view of, of suffering, but a biblical view of suffering that is broken over sin, but rejoices in our salvation. I pray that you be glorified in every word that we say, every song that we sing, every prayer that, that we pray, that our voices would be a sweet-smelling incense before your throne. And that these people here would be a light in a dark world. Who is in perpetual suffering and who faces eternal suffering without your grace. Let us be ambassadors of your gospel, the good news. That Jesus Christ is the solution to their suffering. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, so I want to set up the the scene here a little bit. Uh, Typically we read right past the introductory notes. This is to the choir master. So what that means is this was written to be sung. It's kind of a depressing song. You know, we like upbeat songs that pat ourselves on the back. But the, the Hebrews sung every type of emotion. This was written to be sung. A maskil of the sons of Korah. A maskil is a liturgical term that just means instruction. This was an instruction to the sons of Korah. Now the sons of Korah, this is interesting because in the second book, Seven, at least seven, probably eight of the Psalms are written by the sons of Korah. And who are the sons of Korah and why should we care? So I want to tell you a little bit about the sons of Korah. Because they're known as the sons of Korah uh, because you don't want to follow after Korah. Korah opposed Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Korah brought the entire congregation against them and tried to overthrow them. Korah was the ringleader in those who blamed Moses and Aaron for their situation who told them that they made themselves governors over them. They, he blamed them and, and instead of giving the credit to God. And he brought uh, all of, or many other leaders along with them. God opens up the ground and swallows up Korah and everyone else who belonged to him, as well as 250 other of his conspirators. Yet the sons of Korah were spared. So these sons... These Levites from the tribe of Levi, and we know with the Levites, this is the, the, uh, the tribe of the priesthood. And so the Levites would attend to the temple services. And the, the Korahites specifically, you can look them up in uh, Numbers 16 and Numbers 6. There's a lot of passages that, that, um, that uh, address them. But their primary job were as songwriters and as singers. They were also temple guards. So they would guard the, the, the uh, tabernacle in the wilderness. They would guard the temple in Jerusalem. And David appointed them to lead worship. So I just want to give you one example that I love about the sons of Korah. And it tells you who we're dealing with, the men who wrote this song. If you turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. If you don't know where that is, if you're in Psalms, go back a couple books. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. This is such a great example of who wrote this. So what's going on here? You know, Israel uh, did not get along with its neighbors. Most of the neighbors hated them. So in chapter 20, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Minunites are coming after them to destroy them. Jehoshaphat is king at the time. He uh, gathers the people to pray to God. And I love what the people say here in verse 12. Oh God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. Great line here. But we do not know what to do. But our eyes are on you. When the affliction is coming or when the uncertainty is coming, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Here's what Jehoshaphat does as king, and here's how the sons of Korah respond. Verse 17, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go against them and the Lord will be with you. This is a good king. 
What does a good king do? Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and all of its inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. You want to cry out to God to intercede for for you and his people? Worship him on your face. But what do the worship leaders do when the entire nation is on their noses? Look at verse 19. What do the sons of Korah do? And the Levites of the Kohites, these are the sons of Korah, and, uh, and the Levites of the Kohites and the Kohites, stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Picture this scene. The nations are coming after them. The people are terrified. The king is on his face before God, worshiping him. Everyone else follows his lead. But these Levite men, who David appointed to lead worship, are standing with a loud voice praising God. These are the men who wrote this psalm that we're going to read this morning. So if you would, turn back to Psalm 42. Many of you may be familiar with this. We know these words as a deer pants for water or as a deer pants for flowing streams. This word pants in the Hebrew is an eager, consuming desire. There's a picture of of, of a deer who's been running through the forest all day and is tired. That deer don't get as tired as we do. But like a runner that's exhausted who just needs water as a deer pants for flowing streams. Very vivid language here. He compares the deer who has been running all day going toward a flowing stream to his own soul. So pants my soul for you, O God. Uh, soul is another word that we don't quite understand in, in a biblical sense. We associate soul with something spiritual, but uh, soul in a, in, a, in a Hebrew sense, nefesh means life. It means what actually makes you alive. So my life, my, my being, myself, everything that makes me a living being, thirst for God. My soul Pants for you, O oh God. His life is very thirsty. His entire being is thirsty. This speaks of a spiritual dryness. This um, dried up within him. I love what Spurgeon says about this. He says, the well is dry. He must drink or die. He must have his God or faint. This is the picture here. Like I've just run a marathon and I need a drink. That's how much I need you, O oh God. You ever felt like that? And Deshaun prayed earlier that those of us who do not do that often wish that we could. Many of you who wonder, why am I so emotional? Why did God make me like this? It is a beautiful thing to say, my soul thirsts for God. But every one of us knows what it feels like to be so run down by this life and this world that we're dehydrated. That we are just sucked dry like there is no life within us. We are dried up. This psalmist, also we need to understand that details in here tell us that he was in the land of Jordan, which is across the Jordan, outside of Jerusalem. He's longing for the worship of of God's people in the temple. We'll get to that in a moment. So there's this, this distance that he's, he's feeling because he's, he's not around the people of God. He's not around the temple of God. And so he's feeling dried up. But Jesus gives us the remedy for that. We also saw this in John. John chapter 7, verse 37. Jesus stands this, he says this. He stands up in the middle of the festival of the booths, and we spent a lot of time on this. In the festival of the booths, there's this great water ritual where they carry these pitchers across the the city, and they pour them out into the well to remind them that God gave them water in the wilderness. Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast, John 7, 37, the great day. Jesus stood up and cried out. This is not Jesus, meek and mild, that all of the Christian Christmas cards want to make him out to be. He stood up and cried out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The psalmist is longing to have his thirst quenched by God. But Jesus promises it to believers. And John gives the explanation of this in verse 39. Now this he had said about the Spirit, whom those, who those who believe in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
we who believe have been given what the psalmist longed for. Rivers of living water within us. We have no excuse for spiritual dryness. God actually has made his home with us, as Jesus told us. And the mark of that is the Holy Spirit within us who gives us these streams of living water. But the psalmist goes on, verse 2, my soul thirsts for God. Another way of saying that my soul pants for you, O God. In Florida, we know what it means like to thirst. Yesterday, tomorrow, the next three months, every day we're going to know what it feels like to be, to be dried up and know, know that nothing else is going to satisfy you like, like water. All of you who think that you're, you Southerners who think your sweet tea is going to do it, 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 it won't. It's going gonna, it's gonna to dry you out eventually. You can go to all these other things, but only water can satisfy that. Our bodies were made for that. And in a spiritual sense, it's the same way. We can go to all these other things to try to find our satisfaction, but it is only the Lord who will fill us. It is the o- only the Lord who will satisfy our thirst. Do we have that thirst? Do we have that desire when we're dehydrated, when we're exhausted by the heat of this world? Do we go for a drink in the living waters that the Savior has given us. We know what it's like to drink cold water on a hot day, but do we know what it's like to be satisfied by the Lord? Martin Luther also had terrible fits of depression. If you've ever read much of Luther, he's not a very joyful man. He could be a curmudgeon many times. And so one particular day he came home, his wife describes it as miserable as ever. His wife, Kate, was sitting there, dressed all in black, And she had all of his children dressed up in black. And so we don't have as much of that in our culture, but if you understand what someone dressed all in black means, okay, this is funeral attire. Luther comes in and he says, who died? And she says, as a wise wife does, have you not heard? God has died. Luther's stunned for a moment. She says, my husband Martin Luther would never have such a state of mind if he had a living God to trust in. Luther laughs. He says, Kate, thou art a wise woman. I have been acting as if God were dead, and I will do so no more. Go and take off thy black. That is a good wife. So many of us need to be reminded as we're moping around and discouraged. God is not dead. We serve a living God. That's exactly what the psalmist says. My my soul thirsts for God. Not a cheap substitute. Not some little G God, but the living God. Only a living God can give living water. The focus of verse 1 and 2 is God. Look at this. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When? He must have his God or he will faint. God, I need to be back in worship. I need to be in Jerusalem. I am in a foreign land and I am away from your people. We don't know the situation of this. We don't know if they were exiled or uh, persecuted or what, what, was, what was going on. Uh, we do know they were persecuted, but we don't know why. It says, when can I come, when can I appear before my God? This language in the Hebrew is literally before the face of God. Now, obviously, God does not have a face and it doesn't work that way. But when you see the face of God, it is his light, his countenance, his presence. God, I want to be where you are. I want your light to shine on me. When can I come before you? This is the desire of the psalmist here. And then he describes what he's feeling during this time. My tears have been my food day and night. Now, when I thought this, when I first read this, I thought this is certainly hyperbole. This is certainly just an expression that, that they, they, they can't be serious here. Um, but then I experienced it this week. A lot of you know I went to Atlanta with my brother, and we were waiting for our flight. We were talking about this, this song, kind of walking through it. And he's been in so much pain that he has not been able to eat. And so I witnessed him buckled over, not having any meals with tears running down his, his, his face because he's in so much pain. And he looks over at me and says, my, my tears have been my food. Have you ever been there where you are so distraught you can't eat? And the only thing that, that, that feeds you are the tears running down your face. These are bold men of God 
who are pouring out their soul to the Lord and who are feasting on their, their tears all the day long. It's heartbreaking to sit there, someone you love, and see them eat their tears. But there's nothing else you can do. As a big brother, you want to fix it. All you can do is cry out to God. All you can do is pray and remind them the gospel and our God who sustains and our God who provides. And I've been so proud of him in that process. that He's learned how to do that. But this is not the situation of the psalmist. The psalmist is not around other believers. He's around persecutors. He's around those who hate his God because they say, he says, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? He's feasting on his tears because his oppressors are in his face. Where is your God? We've heard this. If your God loved you, wouldn't he deliver you? Doesn't God always want you to be happy? If God really cared, he would have came in here and fixed my situation. So many people can't believe in a God of the Bible because he's not their genie who shows up when they want, how they want. And so they blame him for everything. And in difficulty... God will either be your ridicule or he will be your relief. And for the oppressors of God's people, he is their ridicule. But for God's people, he becomes their relief. There's another important lesson here for us. When you're attacked for trusting in God, the attack is against God, not against you. Where is your God? His attackers blame God. Now, it's not the same as those who make stupid decisions and make fools of themselves. Their, their criticism is just. But Jesus tells us what this is like in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, 11 and 12, the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus said this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I've heard way too many people say I'm being persecuted because they're an idiot. Blessed are you if you are persecuted on my account. You are standing in the name of God and people hate you for it. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here the sons of Korah, whoever wrote this, is being persecuted as well. He goes on, verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them to the procession of the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. What does the psalmist do in his depression and discouragement? I remember how good it used to be. What is his memories of joy is being in the, being in the temple, being with your people, leading worship. This is where I should be. I shouldn't be out here in the wilderness by myself. So often, that's what our discouragement and depression feels like, that we are in the wilderness by ourselves. We are so far from everyone else. But we don't have to be like the psalmist. More on that in a moment. I'm going to spend some time on these phrases here. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. When he pours out his soul, he's lamenting over the separation from worship. His soul thirsts. What does his soul thirst for? To be before the face of God. What does he equate the face of God with? I would go with the throng. If you don't know what a mighty throng is, it's just a multitude. It's a lot of people. It's all of Israel in worship. And I would lead the procession. This is one of the worship leaders. I would lead the procession to the house of God. The, the procession in Israel. This is not stuffy, stoic worship. This is a celebration. This is people dancing and, and shouting and cheering for their God, going through the streets, singing praise at the top of their lungs, and he would lead it. But now he's in the wilderness. And they would dance all the way to the house of God, the temple, where they would worship the great God. The psalmist longs for Jerusalem, and he says, the many who were keeping festivals. We know the three big festivals that uh, required everyone to go into Jerusalem. We spent some time in these in John, Passover, weeks, or, or Pentecost, tabernacles, or, or booths. What a passion and power the worship in Jerusalem was. But this is tied to a place. He longs for a place that he cannot go to right now. 
But praise God, we are not limited by the same type of worship. We also see this by Jesus in John chapter 4. When he meets with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman who's trying to figure out where proper worship is. Is it with the Samaritans or is it with the Jews? And so what this psalmist longed for, Jesus gives us the answer to again. John chapter 4 verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, he says that the Father and I make our home with you. That I send my spirit to help you and to reside within you. You are true worshipers. So when you feel like you're in the wilderness, when you feel like I cannot worship now, you have the spirit. You worship in spirit and truth. And this is meant to be an encouragement. But those of us who have the spirit of God indwelt within us, temples of the Holy Spirit, meant to be a temple of worship. Do we have the same joy and longing for worship that the psalmist does? Are we joyful worshipers? Or is this just another thing that we do? Just something that we feel obligated to do? Or do we long when we are discouraged? Do we long to be with the people of God? Long to be with the the celebration of God's people? To hear his word proclaimed? To sing together? To shout joyously, our God is our salvation? But as the psalmist, even when we think about things are good, we still got to doubt ourselves. This comes to the crux of this whole passage. You're going to see this refrain in verse 5 repeated three times. In verse 42 and 43, this is why I think they go together. You're going to see the discouragement of the psalmist and then a conversation he has with himself. He interrogates himself. And then the response is always the same. Why are you downcast, oh my soul? The response is hope in God. We're going to go through a few more of those next week. And then again in verse 11, why are you downcast, O my soul? And the response is hope in God. We're going to see the same thing in 13, but in a much more optimistic view because he knows that God is his Savior and God will vindicate him. But he still ends with why are you downcast, O my soul? The answer is always hope in God. And so this is important in distress. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? It's important when we're in distress and when we're discouraged and when we're depressed to ask ourselves some good questions. Why? What's really going on? To ask real questions of ourselves and be honest about the answer. Why are you downcast? This word downcast, it comes from a word that means to be melted, to to melt away, to be dissolved. And so the implication here is that why are you downcast? I am prostrated. On my face, I am humbled to the ground. I have melting because there is no bones left in me. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? This word for, for turmoil is a loud or troubled distress within you. It is a loud, sorrowful voice. Why are you in turmoil? We can tend to read over these words, but they're so descriptive in the original language. This is not someone who's having a bad day. This is someone who's broken down to their very core. The psalmist's depression is deep and it is debilitating. But the temptation is always, since our situations are the problem, all these oppressors are the problem, I need to change my situation. If we think that because the situation is the problem, then if we change the situation, that that's the solution. But what does he do? When your situation constantly changes, he goes back to the one who does not change. And there's another important thing here. Just because you feel far from the love of God does not mean that you are. His response to himself, why are you downcast, oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? His response, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a great book called Spiritual Depression. And I encourage you, that's something you struggle with or need to wrap your head around 
It's a good read. But I want to look at one of the passages from this because I think he hits this on the head. So Martin Lloyd-Jones says, The ultimate cause of spiritual depression is unbelief. Listen to this next line. For if it were not for unbelief, even the devil could do nothing. It is because we listen to the devil and instead of listening to God that we fall before his attacks. This is why the psalmist keeps on saying, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. He reminds himself of God. Why? Because he was depressed and had forgotten God. So that his faith, his belief in God and God's power and his relationship with God were not what they ought to be. Now here's where it gets personal. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Wow. Have you noticed that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? You know what he's saying here. Listening to the voices in your head, listening to the discouragement. He says, why are you downcast? Why are you trusting in a God who would let you be miserable? Why do I feel like my God has abandoned me? Why are you listening to that when in fact you should be talking to yourself? I love what he goes on to say here. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asked. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. That is good. When you're having a hard time, talk to yourself. Self, pay attention here. Luther talks about preaching the gospel to yourself. Every time he was burdened over his own sin, he had to remind himself of what Christ had done. But I love this. How many of you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? How many of you are listening to the lies of your emotions than talking to yourself the truth of the gospel? How often do you say self-listen? Mind, feelings, shut up. Let God's word speak. This is what the psalmist is saying here in verse 5. Okay, we get his, we get his downcastness, we get his, his turmoil, but then he says, all right, self, listen here. Spurgeon said he speaks as two men. There's a battle within him. He's downcast, but yet he's reminding himself to hope in God. And Steve Lawson calls this the upward look of the downcast soul. I think that's beautiful. This is what made me most proud of my brother in this last season. That when his soul was continually downcast, and as many men in this congregation can attest, he will continually remind you to hope in God. He will continually remind you to praise him. This is what the psalmist does. So I want to spend a little time on this last line before we finish up. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Hope in Hebrew, it's wait and trust. We can wait now because we trust God for the future. That's what the Hebrew idea of hope is. Waiting and trusting. I wait now because I trust God for the future. So we see three things in this command. One, it is a command. Hope in God, it's a command. What we are to do and who we direct it to. Hope in God. That is a clear command. But we also see the, the, the countenance of the one who is commanded here. The countenance is, it is through praise. How do you hope in God? In praise. The countenance of the one. How do I hope? I praise again. Not just once. I return again. I remind myself that I am to praise God. And what is the reminder that the psalmist gives him? The connection. We've got the command, the countenance, and the connection. What is the connection? I am connected to God. Praise him. My salvation. My God. The hope, the thing that draws the psalmist to praise is that this is my God. This is my Savior. Why can I hope and praise? He's my God. He's my Savior. Not just any God, my God. To the Hebrews, salvation meant being saved from their enemies. And so it did. They would cry out to God so that they wouldn't be destroyed. But we understand through the gospel our deeper need for salvation of our own sinfulness. We need to be saved from ourselves. They were crying out for a savior from battle and from distress. We cry out for eternal salvation. 
and our hope as Christians. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Our hope. The Hebrews can wait and hope because they trust God in the future. Christians, we can hope. We can wait because we trust God. Because we know what Christ has done for us. We can say that on the cross he took my sin. That is my Savior. That is my God. So when I'm depressed, when I'm discouraged, I can look at the one who suffered for me. As Spurgeon remind his congregation and his students, Christ suffered for you on that tree. And he also sympathized for you every moment he was on this earth. And as a high priest, he has not forgotten what it, is meant, what it meant to be human. So we don't have a high priest who cannot understand. So we must bring this full circle that the gospel is the foundation for our hope. Hope in God. How can we hope in God? Because our salvation is the basis of our hope. And our salvation is our God. Our God who took on flesh to be our salvation, to be our hope. This psalm, written to Israelites hundreds of years before Christ, is so applicable to us. Anyone in here ever felt like what's going on in this psalm? So, I want you to think about this. Resist meditating on the whys and whats of your present situations. But meditate on the who of your salvation. Resist, I'm going to say it again. Resist meditating on the what and why of your current situation. But instead, meditate on the who of your salvation. Because in your, in your discouragement... What keeps running through your head? Why and what? Why is this happening? What is going on in my life? Instead of who is my savior? Where is my help? Write this down. It will serve you well. Because when your mind keeps replaying the what's and the why's of your situation, speak to yourself. Say self. Remind yourself of the who of your salvation. And one thing, uh, maybe two more things. Uh, what I like that's interesting about this, after spending some, some, some time on it, look at the structure of this last line. Hope in God, for I shall again praise my salvation and my God. God is the beginning and end of this sentence. God is the beginning and end of the solution. God is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end of the solution. And what happens in the middle? Praise. Hope in God, praise him. God, my God is my salvation. This entire process begins and ends with God and it's filled with praise. And it is possible to praise God through your tears. I've been there with many of you who have. There's a couple passages of this that help us understand this in the Christian life and then we'll close. 1 Peter chapter 4. Got to get there. All right. First Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Sound like this? Sound like us at all? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Many of you act like something strange is happening when something goes wrong. It's not strange. Peter tells us this 2,000 years ago. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you suffer for the sake of the gospel, if you are burdened by the sin of this life, you're in good company. And the one who came to take on flesh and went back to glory is preparing glory for you. If you, here's where it gets personal, right? If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. A lot of you do not want to be insulted for the name of Christ because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. Now there are others, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory God in that name. God's glory rests in the name Christian, those who are hidden in Christ, not just people who wear some cultural moniker. That is our, our, our glory and our suffering is with Christ. One more passage in Hebrews chapter 12. This great reminder in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 11, the great cloud of witnesses, all those faithful in the faith who came before. Picking up at the beginning of chapter 12. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. This psalm is about sin and weight that clings closely to us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we run? How do we cast off this sin and weight? Verse 2, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. His suffering was a joy to him for us. The gospel is the answer to our discouragement and our suffering. He, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is our Savior. That is our God. Quickly as we conclude here, just to remind ourselves, why are you downcast, O my soul? The response is hope in God, and often our mind needs to teach our emotions. We need to speak to ourselves Preach the gospel to ourselves. Why are you downcast? Hope in God. But there is a benefit to this whole psalm. The benefit is that this deep discouragement and the depression caused him to pray. Caused him to remind himself of, the, of, of his God. His humility brought appreciation for his God. So let's, this brings us full circle to where we began. Our depression often comes out of a lack of belief in the provision of God yet it drives us to him. It humbles us so we can cry out to him, remembering that Christ is our great priest, who is able to sympathize in our weakness. He is our hope and our salvation. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you quiet our minds and our hearts today. I pray that the words of this psalmist sinks in. When we are so burdened by our present circumstances and we forget to remind ourselves of our savior lord be our god of help be our deliverer help us to rest in you help us like the psalmist to say confidently hope in god i will again praise him my salvation and my god lord as your people let us think soberly about suffering Let us cry with those who cry and mourn with those who mourn. So as we read this morning in our corporate prayer, we can be a comfort to them. So that those who we, when we share in suffering, we also share in comfort. Let us be the body that does that well. Let us know that the gospel is the answer to our depression and our discouragement. Instead of listening to ourselves, Lord, teach us to speak to ourselves. Have your spirit remind us of the truth that we need to hear. You are strong, a mighty God who is mighty to save. Will never leave, never forsake his people who will be with them to the end of the age. You are our God and we will ever praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.